Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15 as we continue through our study in Matthew's gospel this morning. Matthew chapter 15 is where we'll be at. And uh, some of you are probably already concerned about lunch because we're going through about 20 verses today. But <laughs> you, you, you will be out of here by noon, Lord willing, Lord willing. Uh, Matthew 15 is where we'll be, 21 through 39. We're looking again at a fairly large chunk of scripture, but uh, our text is actually unified by a common theme, a common theme. We didn't just choose these many verses because I was feeling sadistic today, but there's, there's a common theme that ties all of our text together. It's not going to start out the way we would expect, but it will end with Jesus' abundant display of generous mercy towards those who are outside of the common Jewish view of who could be saved. The Gentiles. And throughout our text, we're going to find one of my, my favorite foods as the symbol of the blessings of salvation for both Jew and Gentile. It's not steak, it's bread. It's bread. It's bread. Let's read uh, verses 21 through 28 is what we'll start with. We're going to kind of break this up into two chunks as we go through it today. Um, but let me read verses 21 through 28. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Now let's pray as we come to the word of God. Our Lord, we thank you for the holy scriptures, for the Bibles that we are able to hold in our hands, that we are able to read in our own language. Lord, we thank you that the message of, of good news has come to us thousands of years later in English-speaking people, and yet we are reading about Jesus Christ, your Son. What a wonderful thing to consider that you have preserved your word and that we have it open before us today that we might hear your truth and hear about your Son and understand your glorious purposes in history. Father, we pray that you would exalt Jesus Christ before us today. That as we see his interactions and hear his words, uh, that you would help us to see uh, part of his mission as the Messiah. To be the Savior, not just of the Jews, but of all nations. To be the Messiah for people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Father, pray that you would help me to proclaim your word uh, clearly and helpfully today. And that Christ would be honored. In his name I pray. Amen. Well, two points this morning. Uh, our first point in verses 28 through, uh, 21 through 28, excuse me, is um, we see a Gentile woman's persistent faith. A Gentile woman's persistent faith. Now, I want to back up a little bit so we can remember the context of Matthew 15 because it's going to be crucial uh, for our passage this morning. Uh, Jesus has been in the Jewish village of Gennesaret uh, for the entirety of chapter 15 up to this point, up to this point. Uh, but in verse 21, 
we see Jesus do something strange. He leaves this Jewish region of Galilee and travels to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Now, this is the last time in Matthew's gospel that Jesus will do ministry in Jewish Galilee. And from there, he heads north up the coast of the Mediterranean Sea to the villages of, of Tyre and Sidon, to the cities, really. And, and the reason for this um, is unexplained. We're not told why Jesus does this. And it's, it's really something unexpected. One, Tyre and Sidon are 30 to 50 miles away. So it's not like a, a hop and a skip. It's a pretty serious journey that would take a couple days. It's also unexpected because it's a thoroughly Gentile area. Now, Jews in the first century would, would avoid these Gentile areas like the plague because they feared being defiled. But if you remember last week, uh, Jesus taught his disciples that defilement doesn't come from the outside, but from the inside. And perhaps he's proving it by going to this Gentile territory and remaining undefiled. Now, Tyre and Sidon was the home of the Phoenicians. Uh, they were expert sailors, merchants. They lived on the coast, um, and they were also committed idol worshipers. They were pagans, right? They were Gentiles. Tyre and Sidon have been mentioned previously in Matthew chapter 9. Uh, they're not portrayed well in the Old Testament. They were cities of wealth, of pride, of paganism. And again, it's not explicitly clear why Jesus goes here. Mark 7, 24 of the, the same uh, incident, it tells us that Jesus actually didn't want to be found when he went there. He's trying to be incognito. He, he goes into this house. He's trying to hide from the public, uh, but he, he can't be hidden. He can't be hidden. People find out that he's there, which is somewhat remarkable, considering that this is not a Jewish area, and yet news of Jesus had spread even that far. Matthew tells us in verse 22 that a woman hears Jesus is there, and, and, and she goes to find him. She goes to find him because she's desperate for help. Now, Mark, in Mark 7, describes this woman as a, a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. Uh, but Matthew uses a term that's a little bit more edgy, a little bit of a harsher term. What does he call her? A Canaanite woman. A Canaanite woman. This is the only place that Canaanite is used in the New Testament, and it's used here for a very specific reason. Now, remember, Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. He's writing to first century Jews. Those are the people that God is directing him to speak to. An audience that would be very familiar with the Old Testament, right? And especially with the Canaanites. Who were the Canaanites? They were the ancient enemies of Israel. They're some of the bad guys of the Old Testament. This goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 9, the opening chapters of the Bible. When, if you remember, Noah gets drunk, Ham sees the nakedness of his father, and as a result, Noah curses not Ham, but Ham's son, who is named Canaan. So from the very early pages of history, Canaan, the Canaanites, were considered a cursed people. And when Israel was brought out of Egypt with Moses, God promised to bring them to the land of Canaan and, and to give this land to them. But there were warnings given to the Israelites about the Canaanites. For example, from Exodus 23, verses 23 and 24, God said, When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. Uh, God was very clear to the Israelites, do not associate with the Canaanites. 
God even went so far as to tell them, wipe the Canaanites out because of the idolatrous influence and wickedness they will have. The Canaanites were the religious and military enemies of Israel. And, and when Israel conquered the land, when they finally crossed the Jordan River and go into the land, they were supposed to take out the Canaanites completely, but they did not. They did not. And so in the book of Judges, we see Israel fighting against the Canaanites and then dwelling with the Canaanites. And this close proximity to the Canaanites resulted in Israel picking up some of their idolatrous practices. Centuries later, in the book of Ezra, when the people return to the land, there's a big problem. And Ezra records how the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the land with their abominations from the Canaanites. So by the time we get to Jesus' day, the Jews had had this reversal, right? Um, we, 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 we've been learning about the Pharisees, and we need to understand the Pharisees were ultra-conservative, right? So the people of, of Israel in the Old Testament Let's dabble with the Canaanites. Let's pick up some of their practices. Let's hang out with them, right? The Pharisees went so far as to say, because of all that, we won't even go to their land. We won't even pass by them in the marketplace. We won't even share a meal with them. We want nothing to do with them. They had completely written off the Canaanites. One extra biblical example of Jewish writing from the period says that all Canaan's seed shall be destroyed from of the earth and the residue thereof, and none springing from Canaan shall be saved in the day of judgment. That was the attitude that first century Jews had towards the Canaanite people. There's no salvation for them. They are cut off. They're hopeless. Ethnicity mattered to the first century Jews because of the history behind it. And so when we read that a Canaanite woman comes to Jesus, that's not just an adjective. For first century Jews reading that, that's the most despised kind of person. And so Jesus' interaction with the Canaanite woman is very, very, very important, as we'll see. So this Canaanite woman comes to Jesus, a Jewish teacher. She finds the house where he's staying, and according to Mark, she falls down at his feet and begins crying out for help over and over. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. Verse 22. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. Now, what she says here is striking. Remember, this woman is the descendant of idol worshipers, right, who opposed and attacked and influenced Israel. And yet here she is at the feet of Jesus, not just asking him for help. Right? She's not just asking him for help. What she says is incredible. There's three incredible things here. First, uh, she comes saying, have mercy on me. She comes not expecting that Jesus owes her anything, but seeking only his compassion and mercy, right? She realizes she needs what he has, she, she needs what he can do, but that he is not obligated to do anything for her. Second, and, and, and you know, the, the amazing things here start to increase, she refers to him as Lord, as Lord, recognizing his authority and his power, but she hasn't seen any of his mighty works. She's been 50 miles away in, in this Gentile region. And yet when she comes to him, she addresses him as Lord. Which is one of the marks in Matthew's gospel of those who have faith. She doesn't call him teacher. She doesn't call him rabbi. Like the Pharisees do, she calls him Lord. But that's not the most incredible thing. The most incredible thing is the last thing she says. Son of David. Son of David. 
That's Jesus' messianic title. That highlights his covenant royalty. How does she know about David? Right? How does she know about the son promised to David, the Messiah? Is she, is she maybe a God-fearer, a Gentile who worshiped the true God? Maybe, we don't know. But she clearly has a right understanding of who Jesus is. And she is not rejecting that in favor of her idols, but she is coming to him by faith, addressing him rightly. This is the same thing we heard from the blind men in Matthew 9, 27. Have mercy on us, son of David. And, and yet, tragically, have we heard this from the Pharisees? Have we heard this from the scribes? We have not heard it from the most pious and well-educated relig religious leaders. And yet, Matthew tells us these words are coming out of a Canaanite woman's lips. Again, you can imagine how challenging that might be for a first century Jewish audience. So the Canaanite woman, is she's in distress. She needs help. Her daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Uh, Mark adds that this is her, her little daughter. Her little daughter, a little girl experiencing severe and serious demonic attack. And as any good mother would, she's willing to do anything to help her daughter, even if that means approaching this Jewish teacher for help and healing. Now, we're, we're about halfway through Matthew's gospel so far. And we've seen him be approached by many different kinds of people. We've seen him be approached by the blind, by lepers, by Gentile centurions, by paralytics, by the sick, by the demon-possessed. And not once has he turned them away. Not once has he turned them away. And that's been an amazing thing so far, that Jesus receives all manner of people to himself. He heals them without question. But what does he do with this woman? As this woman makes her passionate and sincere plea to Jesus, verse 23 tells us what Jesus' response is, and, and things take an unexpected turn. He does not answer her a word. He does not answer her a word. He is completely silent as this woman begs him to heal her daughter. He says nothing. That's not what we've come to expect from Jesus, is it? Normally, Jesus is quick to be compassionate, and yet here he's silent. He says nothing. What is going on? The Canaanite woman, uh, the Greek tells us that she's begging and pleading over and over and over and over. She's crying out, begging Jesus for help, and he is silent. Things get so awkward and tense that the disciples come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, please send her away. She's crying out after us. You, you have to do something. She's causing a scene. They want to be away from her. Perhaps they had prejudice of their own against the Canaanites, too. And in verse 24, Jesus finally responds. And are we going to see the tender compassion that we're used to from Jesus? That's not what we see. It's unclear whether Jesus responds to his disciples or the Canaanite woman here. But either way, his response is not what we would expect. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's putting a barrier in front of the Canaanite woman here. What is going on? Is Jesus rejecting this woman because she's not of the house of Israel? It sort of seems that way on the surface, doesn't it? And in one sense, this does make sense. Jesus was born as a Jewish man to go to the Jewish people. As Peter said to the, the Jewish leaders in Acts two, uh, 3, verse 26, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you, the Jews, first. 
And the same way Paul says in Romans 1.16 that the gospel comes to the Jew first. After all, the Jewish people did have a special covenant relationship with God during that period of time in history, right? So it does make some sense that Jesus would give a priority to Jews during his earthly ministry. But on the other hand, we've seen Jesus help Gentiles without problem at all. So what's going on? Why does Jesus respond this way? Why does he put this barrier in front of the Canaanite woman? I think there's a couple things going on here. Uh, one, Jesus is, is saying that the Canaanite woman technically has no right. She has no entitlement to God's promises. Right? She has no guarantee on the basis of her ethnicity that she will receive covenant blessings from God. No Gentile would have a right to claim covenant blessings from God at this point in time because they were given to the Jews. Right? She's not of the house of Israel, so she cannot lay claim and say, that rightly belongs to me. But as we'll soon see, that doesn't mean she's excluded from these blessings either. So on the surface, it seems like Jesus is adopting the common Jewish understanding about the exclusion of the Gentiles from the kingdom. But as the text goes on, we'll actually see Jesus expands the definition of the house of Israel. I think one of the main things happening here is that Jesus is testing this woman's faith. He's testing her faith. He's putting this apparent barrier of her ethnicity in front of her to see how much she truly desires his help and believes in his power. Now imagine you're the Canaanite woman. Imagine that's you. Right? You're, you're, you're weeping and crying out to Jesus, and, and at first he's silent, and then he says this. If that was me, I, I wonder if I would go home discouraged and defeated. But that's not what happened. She's undeterred. Verse 25, she comes closer to him. She kneels down and says, Lord, help me. She comes closer to Jesus with this posture of humility, and she asks again, Lord, help me. Did she not hear Jesus the first time? Right? She's a Gentile. She's outside of the house of Israel. Why, why would she think he would help her at this point? But clearly she believes he can, and she believes that he will. And so she persists in throwing herself upon his mercy. She's like Jacob, who wrestled with God and would not let go until he had received a blessing. And Jesus has another response for her in verse 26. And, and this response is even a little bit more difficult to hear about. It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. This is another barrier to the Canaanite woman. What does Jesus mean when he says this? Well, in this, in this analogy here, Israel is the children. The Gentiles are, are the dogs. And the bread represents God's covenant blessings. Blessings of salvation. Essentially, what Jesus is saying here is that it's not right, it's not proper uh, to give the promises that belong to Israel to the Gentiles. They belong to the Jews first, right? Some commentators have argued about the nature of Jesus' words here. Uh, Jesus, in a way, calls this woman a dog, which uh, in the culture and at the time could be a potentially offensive term for Gentiles. Uh, some progressive theologians heretically claim that Jesus is actually being racist here. They go that far. But the word Jesus uses for dog is more like puppy, like a little house dog, not like a scavenger in the street. Uh, really, Jesus' response describes a, a dog begging for food at the children's feet. 
Now, even that might make us a little uncomfortable here, right? A, a dog doesn't belong at the table. It's not entitled to the food at the table. In the same way, Jesus' response to the Gentile woman, the Canaanite woman, reveals that she is not entitled to sit at the table of blessing. Right? She can't claim her ethnicity as a, as, a, as a right to be there. And again, this is not the kind of response we would expect from Jesus, and that really makes us pay attention. But she doesn't give up here either. And in fact, she, she actually has a very clever response to Jesus. She says, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And notice, she agrees with him. She says, yes, Lord, you're right. You're right. I don't have a right to be at the table. I don't technically belong there. I don't have entitlement to the blessings that are for the house of Israel. But notice that she points out even the little dogs under the table have access to the crumbs that fall. Even they get something. And that's all she's asking for, a crumb. One small thing. The healing of her daughter. The quality of the Gentile woman's faith is remarkable. Her, her persistence reveals she has no other hope than Jesus. Her humility reveals she is owed nothing by Jesus. Her response to him reveals that she believes in the mercy of Jesus, even for her as a Gentile, and it's on that basis that she's appealing to him. She doesn't come up to him and say, Jesus, you need to heal my daughter. But she comes resting in his mercy and in his grace and coming to him on the basis of that. So how will Jesus respond now? And we see in verse 28, after all of this testing, Jesus says, Oh woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Remember, Jesus has been testing this woman's faith. And she passes the test. Her faith in Christ is proven not just to be genuine, but great. But great. And again, so far in Matthew's gospel, uh, the only two places where people have had great faith have been a gentle, Gentile centurion and this Canaanite woman. It's been the Gentiles who have had great faith in Jesus in this gospel so far. And Jesus commends her for it. Right? He approves her for it. Uh, this is, again, the same thing he commended the centurion and the paralytic for, their faith. That's the focus here. And then instantly Jesus heals her daughter. This is a very different tone from Jesus than we saw in the previous verses. She passes the test. Now the Canaanite woman in, in so many ways provides us an example of persistent faith. Have you had times in your life where you were seeking God's help in prayer and it seemed like you were getting no answer? Like he's answering you, not a word. Like God was silent. Yet the Canaanite woman's faith is an example to us to persist. As, as J.C. Ryle says, let us believe and pray on. Jesus hears us and in his own good time will give us an answer. If Jesus could answer a Canaanite woman, if he would answer a Canaanite woman, he will answer us. I mentioned before that I, I think when Jesus says, I've come only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, that there's a double meaning at play. Right, we've talked already about the surface level meaning of this being uh, the mission of the Messiah to go to the Jews first. But notice that Jesus still blesses and helps and commends this Canaanite woman. Right, on one hand, he's saying, I came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and yet clearly, he's there for her. 
clearly he receives her to himself. He tests her faith to be sure, but ultimately does he reject her? No. I think part of what Jesus is revealing is that the house of Israel, in a spiritual sense, includes Gentiles. That the house of Israel goes beyond ethnicity, and it is those who have faith in Christ. Is that not what Romans 4.11 teaches when it says, Abraham was the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them? The Canaanite woman believes, and just like Abraham, her faith is counted to her as righteousness. She belongs, like the centurion, at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the house of Israel, not there because of her ethnicity, but there because of her faith. Right? This is the thing. Her ethnicity doesn't guarantee her any of the promises of God. Nothing about you guarantees you any of the promises of God. Right? That's not how it works. God's promises aren't dependent on, on ethnicity. They're not dependent on your upbringing. They're not dependent on anything about you. Grace is not dependent on those things. It's dependent on the kindness of God. So, friend, if you think there's something about you that would keep you and disqualify you from the grace of God, I don't, I don't get to have any of that because I'm X, Y, Z, fill in the blank. You're wrong. You're just dead wrong. Your ethnicity, your background, your sin, your age, your gender, none of those things. You can make a list uh, a mile long and exhaust every single category, right, that we put on ourselves as human beings. You are not outside the reach of God's grace. This is a Canaanite woman, right? She's not outside of the reach of God's grace. Neither are you. And so, though her ethnicity doesn't entitle her to God's covenant grace in Christ, that's not what it's based on anyway. She's not excluded from those things as we see. And she certainly gets her, her crumb of bread and so much more. Reality, what qualifies us for God's grace is our sin. Right? The fact we are sinners means that we need grace. Perfectly righteous people who never sin don't need grace. But people who do sin, like us, we need grace abundantly. And God has provided a Savior who died for the sin that we do, that qualifies us for that grace, that need of grace. The Savior who died for sinners regardless of any other earthly factors about them. He, Jesus didn't go to the cross and say, I'm going to die for this person and that person. Ah, she's a Canaanite. Can't include her in there. That's not how it works. If you are a sinner, you need Christ. And he is the most abundant Savior that God has provided for you. You can't do better than him. And if you believe in him, you're actually brought into his covenant people. You're brought into the house of Israel, spiritual Israel, which includes both Jews and Gentiles. And in the last part of this chapter, we see that God's blessings of salvation are not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles too, in an amazing way. As Jesus gives not just crumbs to a Gentile crowd, but a feast of bread. Now let's keep reading from verse 29 down. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, and the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? 
They said seven, and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men, besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. Our second point, the second thing we see in our text is Jesus' feast for Gentile crowds. Now, we're going to take a little bit more of a bird's eye view of the last part of this chapter here since we've um, read about this kind of thing already in Matthew 14. This should sound somewhat familiar to you. Um, but there's some little details here that actually completely change what's going on here. Now, when we look at verse 29, uh, all Matthew tells us is that Jesus goes back to the Sea of Galilee and, and that these crowds come to him, uh, the lame, sick, uh, blind, mute, crippled, many others, and Jesus heals all of them. Now, that may not be so surprising to us because we've seen Jesus do this over and over and over throughout the Gospel of Matthew. But there's a detail Matthew doesn't mention that Mark does which is crucial. Jesus' location when this all happens. And we know Jesus leaves Tyre and Sidon, which is kind of to the northwest uh, of the Sea of Galilee, and then he goes somewhere else. But Matthew doesn't tell us where. Mark does. He goes all the way over here to the east to the region of the Decapolis. Mark 7.31 tells us that. Now the Decapolis was to the east of the Sea of Galilee. Um, opposite Capernaum on the western shore. And it was an alliance of ten Gentile cities that shared similar language and culture. This is the same area roundabouts where the two demon-possessed men were encountered. Uh, but what's also important to realize about this is it is a very Gentile area also. So Jesus is leaving Tyre and Sidon, an area of Gentiles, and going to the Decapolis, also a Gentile region. Now again, this is very out of the way. Jesus is going uh, probably a couple hundred miles, maybe at least a hundred. He wouldn't go there by accident, right? He has a purpose for being there. So the setting here, the people Jesus is interacting with for the entirety of chapter 15 from 29 onward, they are Gentiles. That's key. That's key. Now remember the previous encounter with the Gentile woman, right? Jesus essentially explained Gentiles have no entitlement to God's promises. But what do we find Jesus doing here in 29 and 31? Healing them. He's healing them. He doesn't exclude any of these Gentiles. He doesn't have a repeat of the conversation he just had with the Canaanite woman with them. Um, he's healing them all. He's restoring these Gentiles. He's caring for them. Again, right, this just underscores that Jesus was testing her faith. That unlike the Pharisees, Jesus has no issue being among the Gentiles and helping the Gentiles. So he heals the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, many others. He heals them all. And what's amazing is that as these Gentiles watch this, what do they do in verse 31? They glorify the God of Israel. They glorify the God of Israel. What a wonderful little detail that is, isn't it? Right? This is a Gentile region. These are idol worshipers. They're pagans, lost in darkness. And here Jesus is among them, and now they are turning to glorify the God of Israel. A great light has shone upon them, the light of the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. 
and they see Jesus as God's representative. Right? This just hits home that God sends Jesus not just for the Jews, but for all nations. God's desire is not just that the Jewish people would glorify him, but that all peoples would glorify him. And that's exactly what we see happening here in verse 31. Jesus is bringing the messianic blessing of healing to these Gentiles, which, again, for first century Jews would have been challenging to hear. Jesus even, uh, sh shouldn't even be in this area of Palestine, right? He could get defiled. But Jesus' mission is not determined by Jewish culture and tradition, but by God's grace for all nations. But it gets better. It gets better as we go to verse 32 down. There are great crowds of Gentiles surrounding Jesus. They've, they've been healed. They are giving glory to the God of Israel, who in flesh stands in their midst. And then we see something that should be familiar. What does Jesus do? He feeds them. He feeds them. Right? It's basically a repeat of what we read in Matthew 14 with the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus calls his disciples to him. He says, I have compassion on the crowds. They haven't eaten anything for three days. Jesus cares about the well-being of these Gentiles. He doesn't want them to faint on the way home, so he instructs the disciples to feed them. Right? We saw that in Matthew 14. Now, what happened in Matthew 14 when Jesus fed the 5,000? He fed the 5,000, right? It was a miracle. It was an amazing thing. The, the disciples watched this happen. Um, and yet here, in our text today, what happens when Jesus asks them to feed the crowds? Well, how are we going to do that, Jesus? We don't have enough food, right? They ask the same question. Where are we going to get enough bread to feed all these people? You know, and, and you wonder, when, when are the disciples going to connect the dots here? But it takes time. It takes time, right? And Jesus does the same thing. He asks how many loaves they have. How many fish do you have? They have seven loaves and some fish. And just like with the 5,000, Jesus gives thanks, hands the food back to the disciples, and they have enough to give to the crowds. Just like when Jesus fed the 5,000, the 4,000 are satisfied. Just like with the 5,000, there are leftovers here too. And this certainly demonstrates Jesus' divine power, his ability to provide those things we saw in, in the text back in Matthew 14, but it also demonstrates something else that's very important given the context. Think back to Jesus' encounter with the Canaanite woman. What does he tell her? He says, it's not right, it's not proper to give the children's bread. She says, all I want is a crumb, and, and Jesus heals her daughter. But what was the bread? It was the, the covenant blessings of salvation. It was the blessings the Messiah would bring for his people. So, so think about this, right? After the encounter with the Canaanite woman, what happens? Jesus goes to another Gentile region, heals them with messianic power, and then gives them a feast primarily consisting of what? Bread. There's no coincidences in the Bible. There's no coincidences in the Bible. It's not a coincidence that this happens after he just talked to this Gentile woman about bread. Here's the thing about the crowd of the 5,000. That was an entirely Jewish crowd in a Jewish region. And Jesus does the same thing for the Gentiles that he did for them. He feeds them a feast of bread. This is hugely significant symbolically. Right? Matthew's spirit-inspired narrative here is revealing that Jesus is not just the Savior of the Jews, but he brings the same blessings, the same feast of bread to the Gentiles. He brings the same thing to them. Right? This is revealing that, that true Israel is not a matter of ethnicity, 
but of God's grace and of faith. It's revealing the ultimate purpose of God's redemptive plan, which is not just to redeem you know, Abraham's ethnic descendants, Israel, but to do what the heavenly host described to Christ in Revelation 5. By your blood you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them one kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign in the earth. Think about what this simple feast of bread is proclaiming about God's mission to redeem the nations. All right, think about what this simple feast of bread is doing in challenging the anti-Gentile prejudice of first century Jews in revealing that Jesus comes to bring his blessings of grace and mercy and salvation to all kinds of people. All kinds of people. And, 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 you know, in one sense, the implications of this passage are really big picture. They're really big picture, helping us to understand the mission of Christ, God's redemptive plan, which is wonderful. And, and I, I, I pray it gives us a sense of awe and amazement, especially uh, for most of you here today, because guess what? Most Christians today are Gentiles. So if we take this section out of the Bible, right, if, if there's no hope for the Gentiles, it's going to be a really small church. Right? It's going to be a really small church. So this is good news for you as Gentiles. Jesus is for you. He has come for you to bring you into all the fullness of covenant blessings. That should cause you to give glory and honor and thanksgiving to the God of Israel who has become your God. And you have become his people. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. We read in Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, starting at verse 11, uh, Paul just glories in this reality that Christ didn't come to save two peoples, but to redeem one people. He says, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what's called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him also you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. What a wonderful thing to consider that God's temple, which is made of people, is made of bricks of many, many different colors and nations and ethnicities. And yet the one the one God who created all things dwells in that temple by his spirit. 
I think there's two more points of application. And we're only at 11.45, so I'm doing good. Um, two points of application. One, uh, and I'm not saying this because I think that racism is a problem in our church, but the implications of what we're reading today completely eliminate any room for Christians to justify racism. Right? Christians should be the least racist people on the planet because Christ came to die for people of all nations, ethnicities, tribes, and tongues. And we should rejoice in that. And we should rejoice to think that just as all of Adam's descendants fell with him in sin, and all humanity has been affected by that, every nation, tribe, and tongue, in Christ, people from every nation, tribe, and tongue are being brought out of that cursed position, being made a new people with a new Adam, Christ our Lord. That's something we should rejoice in. So Christians must not and cannot and, uh, and should not condone or accept or allow racism in any way, shape, or form. And next, finally, point of application, is that Jesus' mission for the nations should encourage us to look to bringing the gospel to the nations. Now, that doesn't mean we neglect the nation we live in because our nation needs the gospel desperately. And we have probably the greatest opportunity to bring the gospel to the people who live around us. But we're getting ready for OCC, right? Operation Christmas Child Season is going to kick off here. And uh, Kathy was telling me they have sent out, I think, 200 million shoeboxes, right? 200 million children around the world have been exposed to the gospel. That's amazing. And you know what's more amazing? There's still like 6,000 people groups that have not received the gospel and not heard it. So there's still so much more work to be done. Uh, and so as an encouragement, let's take advantage of that opportunity we have to reach the nations with things like Operation Christmas Child, like supporting the missionaries uh, Rattan in India, Fali in Madagascar, whether that's through prayer or financially or, or however the Lord leads you in that. Um, but we should be excited about the idea that the gospel is going out to the nations, that Jesus is not just saving Canaanites, but people in Africa, people in Asia, people all around the world are hearing the gospel. What a wonderful thing. And, and what a wonderful thing to picture that when we reach heaven, when we are standing before the throne of God, we'll look around us and, you know, don't know exactly what we're going to look like up there. But John's really clear in Revelation. He sees a multitude from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And so we get to rejoice in that that God redeemed people from all around the world for his name. What a wonderful thing. Amen? Amen. Praise the God who saves the nations. Why don't we pray together? Our Lord and our God, we thank you. We thank you that your son was not just given for one ethnic group, but for all ethnic groups. That your redemption doesn't just extend to one family, but as we heard in Genesis 12, that in Christ all the families of the earth are blessed. Lord, we thank you that your arm is strong to save. Father, I, I, I pray that you would encourage us as we see Jesus' heart for Gentiles. Lord, that you would encourage us and, and, and lift up our hearts knowing that we have been made uh, not two peoples, but one new people in him. And Father, may that allow us to love people of every nation, tribe, and tongue. 
May that cause us to give thanks to the God who saves the nations and to the Savior who's been given, whose blood has been shed for the redemption of the nations. Father, we pray for Operation Christmas Child as we get ready to serve as a drop-off center, as we get ready to pack our own shoeboxes. Um, Father, help us to do that not carelessly, not thoughtlessly, but considering the amazing reality that these shoeboxes are able to go where missionaries can't. And that you use something as simple as a shoebox, a cardboard filled with, with goodies. Lord, that you have used that time and time and time again to save souls around the world. And so, Father, help us to be rejoicing as we pack our shoeboxes. Help us to be prayerful as we pack our shoeboxes. Um, Lord, to be confident that you will do a great work. And Father, we pray for Rattan and Fali, our, our, the missionaries we support. Father, we pray you would bless them as they go out to reach the nations, Lord, that they have come from and as they go back to. Father, please, would you bring a great harvest? And Lord, would you maybe even place upon our hearts other ways that we can reach the nations with the gospel? Lord, we marvel that you would use ordinary things like shoeboxes and people. And yet, Lord, that only ensures you get all the glory. And so, Lord, we give all glory to you. And we give you thanks for our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.